I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. They are so committed to the fact that this society is the way it is and that's all you can expect. And that's what I, I'd call vested interest in the ongoing game. And if you have vested interest in the ongoing game, you are frightened by anything that might change it. How did we get hung up this way? Because it's a, it's a social condition, you'd agree. How did we get hung up this way? How did man get into this kind of cultural limits? Yes, of this incredible moment? assumption that um, society is as it is and has always been this way. Well... Because that, that makes no sense at all the moment you say it, and yet people yeah. behave as if that were true. Well, it's just like, for example, the fact, uh, I was at a lecture the other day of Buckminster Fuller, and um, who's doing your dome for the World's Fair, I think, up in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, look, we now know there is enough to go around, all right? In other words, if we could truly collaborate with our fellow man, there would be enough to go around for the world. But none of us can break through our own models of the way the game goes enough to do the things necessary to bring about that realization. And it's only when there is enough that we can become back to we, both of us as subject, and experience the unity when we are truly collaborative about our resources. Welcome back to the Align Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and in today's gorgeous episode, I got to chat with Dr. Ellen Langer. I hope y'all have heard of Ellen already. If you haven't, I'm sure you have. Uh, you're familiar with studies that she's conducted. Uh, she's a writer. She is a the first female tenured professor at Harvard University. Uh, her most recent book called Counterclockwise Radical. I would absolutely 100% recommend every human being reading that book. I had a great time um, getting through that guy. It's just, just awesome. I highlighted the crap out of it. So hope you guys enjoy that. Um, Ellen is a professor at Harvard University. Her main studies involve illusion of control, decision-making, aging, mindfulness theory, and I'm pretty sure Dr. Langer will be considered the most distinguished professor in the world in the, the topics of mindfulness. She's known as the mother of mindfulness, um, and she's been doing this longer than anybody. So I am just so, so grateful for her time on the show. And uh, she, you can, she has a, an amazing sense of humor as well, which is great. And so, uh, yeah, hope you guys dig it. The dominant view had been dualism mind and body as if separate. Now everybody knows the mind influences the body. But the big question was always, well, how do you get from a thought to the body, to you know, something fuzzy, a thought, to something material? And the putting the two back together gets rid of the problem. Thank you so much for tuning in to the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you will find hundreds of videos from self-care and functional movement, self-care kit, hollow foam roller, screw-in lids, two different myofascial release balls, and heavy-duty elastic band with door anchor so you can adjust the height of that band, get your tissue moving silky and smooth the way it is supposed to. 
Um, thank you so much for the reviews on iTunes. They mean the world to me and also help the show. So take a moment and uh, I believe you can do it on your cell phone. So if you're listening to your phone, just pop that thing out. Drop me a five-star review because it is so helpful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, what else? Amazon Portal. Bookmark that guy on your computer machine. Greatly appreciated. About 6 or 7% of any purchases end up going towards the Line Podcast Foundation, which is wonderful. And um, anything else? What's going on? Most recent thing that's going on, I just finished up uh, dancing in a burlesque performance. This is my third burlesque performance, and that was awesome. I did a, a, a heterosexual acrobatic performance with a, with a female, and then I did a, I did a, a gay performance <laughs> with, my, with a friend of mine. And that was just fantastic. Pushing boundaries, becoming more comfortable with, uh, with myself, with my sexuality, with, you know, just being potentially judged by people. Um, I'm not gay, but uh, yet, you never know. But um, it's just really a, a gratifying feeling to put yourself in those situations where for the longest time we have these taboos around it's okay to feel a certain way or it's okay to be a certain way or whatever it is. And to be able to kind of like punch that in the face, uh, big fan of that. So that happened. That was great. And I'll post some videos up on Facebook and Instagram and such on that. I'll, I'll post them up this week sometime. If you guys want to see that, that's pretty weird. I think that might be all. Um, por favor, maybe this week, if you feel inspired, uh, you could do us a huge favor and tell your friends about the show. Maybe pick out three friends that you care about and uh, if this the topics on here might be helpful for them, it would be greatly appreciated to, uh, to let them know. Um, it's just really, I greatly value the people that are on this show and I really truly believe that these messages are important for everyone to hear. So love to get that thing out there. All right, here we go. Thank you so much, Dr. Ellen Langer. Here we go. Bum, 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 bam. Align Podcast. Goddess of love and mindfulness, Langer. Okay, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we don't want you to show this video because I didn't think it was video. I don't have any makeup on. I think you look incredibly beautiful. Yeah, thank you. You're very sweet. You're welcome. But still, I don't want you to show it. Fine. We won't. We won't use the video. But nonetheless, it's still, it's still, uh, it's helpful for me because sometimes, I don't know. I mean, this is kind of a part of mindfulness, right? Seeing, having that 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 visual interaction and being able to sure, see people. Sure. So, anyhow, let me get my. I always stand on a and, foam and roller. And vanity is mindless, so you know you win. All right, perfect. Let me grab my foam roller because I like to stand on that guy. I'll be back in one moment. Okay. Thank you for compromising me with me on that. I'm just joking. Compromises. Compromises mindless. I know. It means everyone loses. You just lose less. I know, I know. Uh, so, so cool. So, where are you located at? Right now, I'm in Dartmouth, Mass. Oh, Let me right. show you. Nice. You're on the river. Right. Do you go? Do you do some backflips into that thing, or some? You? No, uh... no. I look at it. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Have you ever heard of noodling? This is off topic. Where you go, you yes, put your fist sure. in, you pull the catfish out. Maybe. No. No. <laughs> Is that what noodling is? <laughs> That's what I've been told. <laughs> oh, I thought noodling was, you know, those long um, styrofoam things. 
Yeah, that that's another. That's, that's another version. Yeah, there's there's probably, that's the new. That's the only noodling I would. Yeah, do. there's a wide variety of noodling. Anyway, now so, there's canoodling. Right, that's a whole another. It's a whole another whole other subject. So so I have um, I absolutely love your work. I really mean Thank that. You. I, it's it's been so cool to. Uh, so much confirmation around what you've done. And I didn't even realize that I think a lot of the confirmation from what you've done over the years is a product of some studies from you that I've been using as my own confirmation. And then I'm like, oh my God, that's, that's Ellen. That's perfect. I had no idea. So it's awesome. Appreciate All right. It. Now, why are you bouncing? Oh, because I'm on a foam roller. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I'm able to, to move. All right. All right. So tell me, tell me when we start because I'll be more serious. All right. Well, I'm already recording technically, but I don't need to use any of this stuff. I just, okay. I just kind of rec record the stuff and we kind of talk. I, I'm not really into like very okay. specific, hard, professional. We're just talking. Are you Alex or Alexander? Uh, or Aaron? You can call me Aaron Aron Alejandro or you can call me Aaron, but my last name is Alexander. <laughs> Okay, right. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, so I have a whole bunch of potential directions that we can go, and um, but then I usually try to just throw all that away and just you know talk. It's the big thing. Okay. Yeah, that's that's ideal. Uh, do you have anything in particular uh, that you would like to mention throughout? No. Yeah, I don't think so. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> can I ask what is, what are some of your in, like main influences with? Uh, your perspectives on mindfulness and such, because I know it's, it seems like there's a lot of stoic perspectives in there, and a lot of maybe perhaps Buddhism. And like, what's your main? Where do you where do you get these ideas from? And just um, experience, basically. Yeah. It was very exciting to me when I started this work to see that the work I was doing, which came from a Western scientific perspective, was yielding the same conclusions as Buddhism. Right. But the difference between what I do and, let's say, a Buddhist meditation, uh, which is different from Buddhism per se, is that what I do doesn't require meditation. Mm. So it's important that people understand that meditation is wonderful, but it's a tool, right. nothing more than a tool that leads you to post-meditative mindfulness. Right. There are many ways of getting there. The important thing is to get there. Yeah. So I was cruising around yesterday for Fourth of July, and uh, I may have, may or may not have ingested some type of um, mind-expanding substances. And as I was cruising around, <laughs> as I was cruising around town on my bike, uh, one of the things that I was witnessing with everyone is everyone has this different way of moving through the world. And some people take on different roles of, I am a father, I am, you know, a burnout mother, I am a businessman, I am a construction. <laughs> And that all dictates the way that they move, and I think their physiology as well. They, they kind of form into yes. that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that um, our roles should, in some sense, inform what we do, but not determine what we do. Right. You know, that you want to basically, let me, let me take a half a step back, that some of the gurus in business would tell you that you want work-life balance, right. you know, to balance the various roles. And that's, of course, better than imbalance. But I think it um, uh, comes up way short of work-life integration. Yeah. And what you want is an integrated life rather than to be segmented where your behavior is determined by the context. You want to determine what context you're in yeah. and how you behave. Yeah. And um, 
The other point that's probably worth mentioning about roles is that it's important if people are going to be guided or even governed, sadly, by these roles, they need to have multiple roles. So if you were, um, I don't know, let's say you said mother. So you're a mother, you're a chauffeur, uh, you're a cook, um, you're a friend, and you're a reader, whatever else. If any of these roles takes a hit, you know, imagine if you're only one thing and you come up short, well, that's devastating. If you have 20 roles and you come up short, it's sort of if you were taking an exam as a kid. And, you know, you got one question wrong. If there was only one question on the test, you're in trouble. If there are 20 questions on the test and you get one wrong, well, you can still get an A for the course. Yeah. So an A for life in this case by having multiple roles. Right. And so that's that's kind of like flexibility in your body, flexibility in your mind allows you to be more fluid with all experiences and also be able to move, move on, you know, be able to roll with the punches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Something you had mentioned a moment ago about um, the effect of the body as a result of your mind and your mind in these different contexts is very important and has guided a lot of our research. So back in, gee, I guess back in 1979, before you were born, I I was only a child myself. No, not really. (laughs) Uh, I first developed uh, what um, I call the mind-body unity theory. It's very simple, but to understand it, you have to take a, uh, understand that the dominant view had been dualism, mind and body as if separate. Now, everybody knows the mind influences the body, but the big question was always, well, how do you get from a thought to the body, to, you know, something fuzzy, a thought, to something material? And the putting the two back together gets rid of the problem. Right. So by getting rid of the problem, we, we then think to do all sorts of studies that wouldn't occur to you otherwise. So we put the two together, and now you're one. Your mind, body, your body determines what your mind is doing. Your mind determines what your body is doing. And we put the mind in uh, the body, the, we put you, Aaron, in different circumstances, and then we take the measures from your body. So in that first study, it's, uh, it's been called the counterclockwise study. Yeah. What we did was to retrofit a monastery. We got rid of all the religious icons, and we retrofitted it to 20 years earlier. And we were going to have old men live there in 1979 as if it were 1959. They were going to talk about the past in the present tense, and in all ways we were trying to put the mind back 20 years, and then take the measurements from the body. And the results were astounding, I think. What we found was um, an improvement in vision, hearing, memory, strength, and they looked younger. They didn't look 20 years younger, but they still looked noticeably younger. So then we continued that to this present day with all sorts of studies, taking the mind, putting it in a good place, and taking the measures from the body. Awesome. I wonder sometimes, so I, I share the belief that the mind and the body are one integrated unit, you know, but that, that dualistic perspective, I think almost allots a bit of insurance in the sense of like, if my body is going, it's failing me 
it's this machine that's failing me. It's not me that's failing me. It's the machine, yeah. you know, or yeah. my mind or vice versa. You know, right. but to put them together, it's like, oh, it's all me. <laughs> well, <laughs> that could be comforting, but it limits your control. Right. Right. And then you have to go get a mechanic to help you. Right. <laughs> yeah. So how yeah, do you, I think I know yeah. I think that and now it's about 40 years of research that I've done with uh, my students and so on. And um, it seems very clear to me that the amount of control we actually have over our health is enormous, enormous. And we've only tapped a small amount of it. Yeah. So even though um, you feel comforted in the example you just gave, uh, best to give up that belief and recognize that, in fact, you can, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, heal yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's the steps towards empowerment that I'm really curious about because I find a lot of times when you go do see those uh, mechanics, it's it's disempowering. One of the worst things that you can ever say to me uh, is that I'll fix you, you know, because yeah. I'm just like you bastard. You know, <laughs> I got myself into this. You know, I'll I'm get... I'm I'm seeking you as a guide, as a compass to help right. walk me along my path. Right. But again, that's a responsibility issue, and I think that that's that's scary. I think I'm going to walk alone. I'm going to leave my mom's house. Yeah, but essentially, as I'm sure you've been told, you are walking alone anyway, so you might as well own it. Right. And, <laughs> and in a going forward mode, choose your path. Yeah. So you have you have actionable steps in regards to things, tangible things that people can do. Nah, I just do it all from my armchair and guess. No, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there are steps. Can we dig into something like, okay, like what what the hell are we talking about? Like what? Okay. What's this oh, look like? I think I think maybe um, uh, your listeners should have a few more examples of some of the research so they see. Please. You know how? Okay. So one of the studies that we did, uh, you know, now I'm I'm different from most people, uh, for better and worse. When I go to a doctor's office and I have to read that eye chart, I don't look at it the way most people do. To me, I see a bunch of letters that make no sense that get progressively smaller. Right. To me, that says, soon I'm expected not to be able to see. So we did a study where we turned the eye chart upside down. Now then we're changing the expectation to soon you will be able to see. Yeah. And when we do this, people can see what they couldn't see before. Right. Another part of this, people have um, an expectation that they're not gonna be able to see maybe two thirds of the way down the chart. So we show them a chart that starts a third of the way down mm. in smaller letters, right? Yeah. So that when you're two-thirds of the way down from this starting point, the letters are much, much smaller. Yeah. And again, people can see what they couldn't be, see before. Mm. So our vision is controlled by um, our expectations. Virtually everything is. Right. But perhaps the study that is most surprising, mm. other than the counterclockwise one, was the chambermaid study. I love that one. Do you know that study? Okay. Yeah. I've... So basically what we did was we went to chambermaids all over Boston, and you know we just asked them um, how much exercise they get. Interestingly, they don't think they get exercise. And the reason for that is because exercise is defined by the Surgeon General as what you do when you're not at work. Well, they're too tired after working all day right. to do any exercise. Yeah. So here they're exercising in, you know, from an observer's perspective, but from their perspective, they're not exercising. 
If exercise is supposed to be good for you, it shouldn't matter whether you think of yourself as exercising or not, right? right? Yeah. Because your body is moving around. Well, what we did is we took half of these chambermaids and we simply taught them that their work was exercise. We showed them that making a bed was like this or that machine at the gym and so on. So at the end of this 15 minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it was, they now thought their work was exercise. We took a lot of measures before we started the study. And then we came back. I'm not sure whether it was um, one or three months later, but something within that range. And um, took another set of measures. And we asked them. Things like, are they working any harder? Are they eating any more? A normal set of things that would describe the real results we got. Then we take the important measures. And what we found was those chambermaids that now saw their work as exercise lost weight. There was a change in waist-to-hip ratio, body mass index, and their blood pressure came down. And it seems all from the change in mindset. Yeah. And that's like, I, I'm like fireworks with, with reading that because that's something that I prescribe to clients on a, a daily basis. You know, yesterday I was working with someone and she wasn't in, you know, the, the, the best of, of physical condition from a peripheral perspective. And we're thinking like, okay, you need to enjoy your days. You need to enjoy your movement. You need, like, if you don't enjoy it, it's not going to last. It's not sustainable. And so yeah. she's like, well, I do yoga. I don't really like it, but I do it because I think it's good for me. It's like, all right, well, that's not going to work. Do you garden? Yeah, I love gardening. Oh, my God, great. So you're squatting down. You're picking stuff up. You're raking. That's yeah. Let's break the mechanics down of that. But then the next thing is how do we take that into all aspects of life, I think, unless that's crazy. No, no, not at all. I mean, what, what we're saying is your thoughts are more powerful Right. than most people assume right. and you know so and your thoughts are things over which you have full control yeah. and so the amount uh, the importance of that i don't think can be um, overstated right. now so the the main idea for people is basically to wake up but before i give you steps i know you want steps <laughs> there okay so we have two basic kinds of studies that we're doing now with lots of diseases. One is this counterclockwise idea, okay, where we put their heads in other places and take their measurements. Just, you know, it's like a placebo. Uh, The other is more directly mindfulness, where these are studies where we have people attend to the variability in their symptoms. Now, attention to variability, to change, really is just being mindful. It's a fancy way of saying being mindful. But what happens with uh, many people is you go to the doctor, you get a diagnosis, and then you just assume everything is status quo. It's just going to stay that way. And you do or you don't do whatever the doctor orders. If instead you recognize that symptoms don't stay still, nothing stays still. Sometimes they're better, sometimes they're worse, sometimes they don't even exist. And you ask yourself when they're better or worse it doesn't matter why why is it that what am i doing what's surrounding me what did i just do what did i just eat who did i just speak to what whatever differences might exist to explain it you may come upon an answer to the problem but even if you don't 40 years of research that we've done says that simply asking these questions and exploring possibilities 
makes you more mindful and mindfulness itself is good for your health. So to take a concrete example, let's say, although we didn't do it with asthma, let's take asthma. So you have asthma um, and um, the doctor gives you, diagnoses you, gives you an inhaler or tells you, prescribes an inhaler. And that's the last you really think about it. You just assume you have asthma. Every time you need the inhaler, you reach for the inhaler. That's the beginning and the end of your participation in it. Now, if I call you periodically and I say, so did you need the inhaler now? Do you need it now? When did you last need it? Why now? Why not before? Perhaps, let's say, you come to the understanding that, gee, when you're talking to Ellen Langer, you don't need the inhaler. When you're talking to, I don't know, pick somebody else, you're, you know, you're bought. Right. You need the inhaler. Well, there you have control, right? Yeah. Oh, stop talking to that person. Stop interacting with that person. Right. Um, so um, you have pain. People who are in pain, big pain, think they're in pain all the time and to the same degree. <clears throat> Again, nothing happens all the time, <clears throat> nor does it happen to the same degree. So if you ask yourself, why now? Is it a little better or a little worse? And then search for an understanding of it. Again, two things happen. By searching, you're being more mindful, which is good for your health. You're also not thinking about your pain. And the second, by asking that question, what makes this moment different from the moment before? You see that, you know, when you stand in this particular way, your back hurts. But if you stand in this other way, it doesn't. Well, so fine. There you have a a minor solution to your pain. Yeah. And that's one of the other studies that you do in relation to, to responsibility and, and, and general noticing was the one with retirement folks or retirement homes. The one home people had the responsibility to choose where the flowers go and where to have visits and when movies, the other people didn't. And what they fight with that, it's like, what? oh, no, like that sucks. You got to do all this stuff. But that ends <laughs> up keeping people healthy and alive. You know, once people. Yeah, that's, that study was. Um... Perhaps the beginning of uh, mind-body medicine or early on in mind-body medicine. And what the important finding there was by giving people these mindful choices, making them um, understand, look at their environment in a more mindful way, uh, resulted in them living longer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we have, we have a, a recent study that Panis just published online on July 4th to make a big bang and uh, the written report will be out very soon but this was a study with uh, type 2 diabetics and what would people have type 2 diabetes so people would uh, show up for the study we can take all sorts of measures and um, then we would have them sit in front of a computer and play computer games now for a third of the people there was a clock in, for each case, there was a clock next to the computer. For a third of the people, the clock was going twice as fast as real. For a third of the people, it was going half as fast as real time. For a third of the people, it was real time. We had people who were doing these computer games change the game they were playing every 15 minutes, so they had to notice the clock. So remember, they're going to notice a clock that they think is real, but that for some of them, time is racing by. For some of them, time is slowly passing. And for some, it's accurate. And the question we were asking was, does blood sugar level 
follow real or perceived time. And what we found was that it follows perceived time. Right. Now, so remember the major problem for people with diabetes is uh, their blood sugar level. And it seems that um, we can also control that with our minds. Now, we're, we're still a ways from a very step-by-step um, uh, cure for type 2 diabetes. But it's very exciting. It's a very exciting finding to see that something that seems as if we have no control separate from when we eat, how much sugar we eat, and so on, um, that we can control this with our minds. So I think, I think it's interesting. It feels to me as though this mindlessness is com- almost ingrained into our culture as Westerners. You know, as oh, the, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it's limited to the West. I know and it's that, not just the West now, but now the West is taking over the world. Okay, <laughs> you know? Hopefully better than the East taking over the world. No. Um, I think that um, now that the world is so small, it yeah, really right. it doesn't pay much. Uh, we don't buy much by uh, drawing the distinction. Right. But the point is that it's a very, very um, almost essential, although it's not, but it seemed to be an essential part of our culture. Right. It's based on the belief that there are facts, absolute facts. Yes. And the people who know the most absolute facts rise uh, in importance. Right. And so schools teach absolute facts. But in fact, absolutes um, should give way to conditional understandings of things. There really are no absolutes, yeah. or probably not, since I can't say that with absolute certainty. But the, lar- the, the larger point before we look more closely at what I've just said is that when you think you know something for sure, you don't pay any attention to it. Mm-hmm. There's no reason, right, because you know it. If your listeners thought they knew just what I was going to say next, why bother listening? So they may still have their radio on, for example, or computer, um, but they wouldn't be actively paying attention to what was being said. Now, so people are holding things still in their minds, but the reality is everything is changing. And so by thinking you know when you don't know, you get called up short, right? And you're missing all sorts of opportunities. So when I lecture on these things, I often say to people, Um, I might say, how much is one in one? You know, to try to take one of the absolutes that people are quite certain about. And so people dutifully say two. But one in one is not always two. If you take one pile of sand and you add it to one pile of sand, one plus one is one. If you take one pile of snow, you add it to one pile of snow, one plus one, one pile of laundry, you add it to one, and so on. And so in the real world, there are probably as many exceptions to to the abstraction. One plus one is two is an abstraction, right? So um, the point is that most, when we think we know, we need to reconsider that. We need to ask ourselves, well, how could I be wrong? How could it be other? than I think it is. Now, we do this with people. We think this person's a a nasty person. If you think somebody is a nasty person, for example, and you're sure of that, you treat them in a negative way. They respond negatively. Then you get confirmation, ah, he was that kind of a person, and so on. Mm. If you ask yourself, how could that behavior have made some sense in this context? Or um, 
you know, what are the occasions where he's not nasty? And if you, what we, we have, um, what people don't understand is that we can almost always find confirmation for the hypotheses we entertain. So you have to be careful what you ask yourself. So if you said, is this person nasty, you're going to find lots of evidence. But you would also find lots of evidence if you said, when is this person not nasty? Yes. So by switching our hypotheses around and gain, gathering data opposite to what we believe, we end up in a position where we say, yeah, well, sometimes he's nasty, sometimes he's not you know, in a more moderate place, a more conditional place. So if somebody came and asked you, is the person nasty? You'd have to say, well, it depends on what you mean by nasty. You know, how nasty is nasty, nasty how often, and so on. Yeah. Is that clear? It's... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, so the thing that I, where it becomes kind of interesting to me is the difference between, I'm just making these words up, but hard observation and subtle observation. You know, and if you're if you're doing hard observation, which I'm literally just making this up now, so this has no, you know, <laughs> this is backed by whatever. But you know, yes, what, I know. <laughs> wait, what? Okay, good. <laughs> I figured you did. <laughs> yeah, and, but if you're doing a hard observation and you're really looking at yourself and you're really paying attention, you go into a state of contraction and you end up missing life and you end up missing the yeah. colors. Yeah. So I have a one-liner that captures that, which is. Uh, predict today and lose tomorrow. Right. These these facts that we know, these hypotheses, uh, these predictions, it's all the same thing, guide the information that we take in. And so then when people think they're going to take in more information, more information is not more informative because it's just more of the same. Mm. Rather than putting on a different lens and looking through that to get very different information. And the main point is that certainties are mindless. And um, everything is changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. So if we can adopt a mindset of uncertainty, if we can just be a little more aware that we don't know, then your attention would naturally go to the things around you. You don't need any training for that. So if you were going to take a trip, where do you want to go, Aaron? I want to go to Disneyland. Okay, so if if you were going to take a trip to Disneyland, we don't have to teach you how to be mindful when you get to Disneyland. Mm -hmm. Presumably, you want to go there because you haven't been there before or not in a long time. So the moment you walked in, greeted by, do we still get greeted by the, the a mouse? I, I don't really, I don't really want to go to Disney. I don't, I don't really want to go. Back. <laughs> so let's say, let's say you've grown up now and you're a little more sophisticated. Now you know where you should go. You want to go to London because the dollar is worth a lot more there now. Right. So you want to go to London. You've never been to London. The moment you get off the plane, you're going to notice because you're expecting everything to be new and different. And so it's going to be exciting. And that's what people also have to understand is that mindfulness is energy begetting, not consuming. You're not wow. exhausted when you're mindful. Right. You're full of energy. It's the essence of engagement. Yeah. It's the way you feel when you're having the most fun, yeah. which depends on you noticing new things, not you know thinking of the world as same old, same old. Yeah, I say the exact same thing in relation to laziness. Laziness begets laziness. So if you're standing upright and strong in your body and you're doing the work and you're, you're making things happen, imagine that. You create energy in yourself. At the end of the day, you're like, well, I have all this. I'm charged up. When you go yeah. into that like energy-saving posture of laziness, 
you start to feel like shit. But let me correct, <laughs> let me correct you, though. Okay. May I? Please. You're younger than I am, so yeah, I can't. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, I think we're better off not casting aspersions about anybody, including and probably most important ourselves. Yeah. So people who and yourself and you're calling yourself lazy, right. what you are is insufficiently motivated. Right. Now, if you see it that way, then the solution, how do you make yourself unlazy? I mean, that's very hard. Right. How do you make yourself more motivated? Well, you know what sorts of things motivate you. And it's what you were saying initially about the person who enjoys gardening and not yoga. Right. That, you know, you find out in how you can do the things you like to do energetically. Yeah. So how do we, how do we, how do we get there? <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's um, it's actually, I mean, I have many, many exercises and I, you know, I've written what, how many books on the topic, five books on the topic. Um, it's not, it's not the kind of thing where I can give you a roadmap because, you know, if let's say you put your right sock on first and then you put your left sock on and you do this every day except in the summer where you might not be wearing socks yeah. that all you have to do is put your left sock on first but yeah. after a while that's going to become mindless too right. so the roadmap can't be do this 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 and this because after a while that becomes routine it becomes uninteresting you think you know it so that certainty leads you to be mindless so the first thing you need to do, one needs to do, is recognize that all of their certainties are likely to be wrong. Hmm. Every time you think you know about anything. Um, now, how do you convince yourself that you don't know it? It's very simple. Just ask yourself how you might be wrong. Um, and then, you know, things change. Let me give you an example because I teach um, in my uh, decision seminar at Harvard I teach about the illusion of predictability. See, lots of times we don't pay attention because we think we can predict, we think we know. So I say to the students, I've been teaching a version of this course for close to 40 years. I have never missed a class. What is the likelihood I'm going to be here next week? And I go around the room, and these are Harvard students, so they're not going to say 100%. They say silly things like 97%, 96%, if as if they're doing some calculation. But essentially, they're all saying, I'm going to be there. So, okay. Now I say, now I want to go around the room, and I want everyone to give me a good reason why I might not be there. And the first person invariably says, well, you've always been the deserve not to come one week. The next person says your dog has to go to the emergency room. And they go around the room. They give very good explanations for why I might not be there. And then I say, okay, what is the likelihood I'm going to be here next week? And now it drops to 50%. Mm. And they realize they don't know. Right. See, what you want to do is, in life, assume a posture of confidence but uncertain yeah. you want to be confident but uncertain right. you know the, and how can you be confident and uncertain in a culture where everybody is walking around as if they know everything yeah. and the the way to do that is at the moment people tend to make a personal attribution for their not knowing what that means is they say some version of i don't know you're acting like you know you probably know so I'm going to pretend or I'm going to be uncomfortable 
I, I'm going to be much smaller than I might be in our interaction. Yeah. The alternative to that is to make what I call a universal attribution to uncertainty. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody can know because it's uh, it's un it's uncertain by definition. Things are always changing. Things look different from different perspectives. Yeah. So now I can stand tall and not know. Yeah. Now, if I do, if I know you can't know, and you are acting like you know, now our interaction goes in a whole different way. Right. Because I I have that secret information that your certainty is based on mindlessness. Yeah, I feel like knowing is almost like a form of insecurity. You know, it's like to I feel you to... have to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That people, it is, I, and that's very astute of you, Aaron. You get an you get an A Woo. for the last five <laughs> minutes. We'll see how the rest unfolds. No, now the the reason it's um, um, subtly insecure is because the reason people feel they have to know is so that they can then predict what's going to happen next. Right. So that they can then. You know, do what people do, which is, if it's good, run out and get it. If it's bad, do all they can to stay away from it. Um, when you're more mindful, you recognize that things are really neither good nor bad. Those evaluations are in our heads, not in the things we're evaluating. And when you recognize that you're going to be just fine, you don't have to be insecure. You're going to be just fine no matter what happens because that thing that happens, you'll be able to interpret in multiple ways. So it's not going to be tragic if, unless you interpret it as tragic. Right. Yeah. And so when you're in that state of mind, you're not pulled by the world around you. Yeah. Right now, if you think good and bad is out there, if it's good, I must have it. If it's bad, I have to do everything to stay away from it. You're very reactive. When you recognize, oh, it's not good, it's not bad, it's, it's really nothing, it just is. Right. Then you can be responsive to it and you're back in control. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that comes back to Stoic philosophy where you know where it's, you know, you don't, it's not the event that changes your state, it's your perception thereof. Right. And that's the game, you know, that's where it's, that's, it's, that's what makes life interesting. Life. It's a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, what makes life interesting <laughs> is the recognition that we make life interesting you know so we have um you can uh, show people a piece of art and they wait for the piece of art to call to them or they decide they just don't like it or whatever but whether it's a piece of art or another person liking follows from noticing yeah. so again to be clear which i don't think i've said yet mindfulness as we study it is the simple process of noticing new things you notice new things, you come to see you didn't know it as well as you thought you did. Then your attention naturally goes to it. So we did this fun study where we had uh, people who hated football, people who knew nothing about art, people, a lot of haters, <laughs> people who didn't like classical music, those who didn't like rap music, all sorts of activities. And we'd have one group just do the activity, you know, look at the art, watch the football game, whatever. We had another group notice one new thing about it, another group noticed three new things, and another group noticed six new things. That's all they did was notice new things. Yeah. The more you notice, the more you like what you're noticing. Right. So you don't have to passively wait to be pulled into an activity. All we need to do is actively engage it. Yeah. Just ask yourself questions about it. Look at it differently. 
notice. And it doesn't matter what you're noticing. If what you're noticing is smart or silly, um, if it's wrong by somebody's definition, as long as you're noticing, that makes you engaged. When you're engaged, the neurons are firing. When you're engaged, you get all excited and um, life starts to look very different. Yeah, and I think that's that's the trick. You know, there's a quote, I don't know who said this, but but something along the lines of make every aspect of your life a masterpiece because anything else would be a tragedy. You know, and so yeah. you can- Well, it's interesting that the Balinese um, don't have a word for beauty. Hmm. And the reason for that is just as you just said, because everything is beautiful. Right. Yeah, Jackson Pollock was good about that. Andy Warhol as well, where it's like looking at like that splatter against the wall or the line of Campbell's cans. You know, it's like it's it's gonna make me cry. <laughs> you know? Well, I I think their their art was innovative, but I'm not sure they were masters of mindfulness because I think that Jackson Pollock in particular, and even Andy Warhol, some were uh, tortured souls. Well, you know, well, no, but uh, mindfulness is uh, the best way to be happy. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. The reason for that is that people are happy when they're engaged. The way to be engaged is to actively notice. That's the definition of being mindful. Yeah. People are happy when they're not stressed, or at least happier than when they're stressed. Stress is a mindless response to events. You're stressed when you don't realize that uh, events don't cause our distress or stress. What causes our stress are the views you take of the event. So if you take a single-minded negative view, sure, you're going to be stressed. If you open up and look at it differently, here, with this one, I can give you steps. So you're stressed about something. Stress relies on two things. One, the belief that something is going to happen. And two, that when it happens, it's going to be awful. So let's check, you know, take a, do something about both of those aspects. The first thing is the belief that it's going to happen. Now, as I showed you with the example from my decision class, um, we can't predict. So if you said to yourself, this event that you're so worried about, um, give yourself three, five reasons, as many as you can come up with, why it might not happen. Well, so you're immediately less stressed because it went from it's definitely going to happen to now it may not happen. Now, as we just said, or I just said, events don't cause stress. It's the view you take of the event. So our evaluations are in our heads, not in the things we're evaluating. So we have this event is going to happen, and it may happen, it may not happen. Let's assume it happens. How is that a good thing? generate three reasons why it's a good thing. So life, for this instance, changes from this awful thing is going to happen and my world's going to fall apart to this thing may or may not happen. And if it happens, it'll have these good parts to it, bad parts, whatever parts I'm going to experience are going to be a function of the way I think of it, not the event itself. It's it's curious to me how some of the greatest art comes from the most tortured souls. Um, maybe. <laughs> and, well, great's a relative guess, word. My guess would be uh, that while they're creating it, they're their best selves, mm-hmm. not their most tortured. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I I paint, 
yeah. and painting or any so-called creative activity is a very nice way of um, being mindful. Sure. You just let yourself, let the activity take over yeah. and you just do it and you give up the evaluation for the while that you're doing it and um, the more engaged you become, the more exciting it becomes. Now we have evidence actually from some of our research that when you do that, the product actually bears the imprint of your mindfulness. So if you were to do something mindfully or mindlessly, the thing you're doing is going to be rated by other people as better if you did it mindfully. Do you know the orchestra study? Uh, maybe. Well, tell me Aaron, more. Aaron, tell me, tell I me. Agree. I, I bet I, I do. I agreed to be on your program. I, if you if you memorized every word I've ever written, I would almost guarantee I do. <laughs> tell me just like four more words okay. more. So what we did, <laughs> we took uh, symphony orchestras, and we were going to have them play a piece mindfully or mindlessly. The instructions we gave them when they were mindless, they were told. Remember when you played this piece last and that you played it well, liked your performance, try to replicate that as well as you can. Right. And we record the piece. The other group is told, groups are told, make it new in very subtle ways that only you would know. Hmm. All right. Now, the important thing is that these people are playing classical music, not jazz. Right. So the subtleties are indeed subtle. All right. So we record the piece. We also asked the musicians how much they enjoyed playing in these two different ways. And they overwhelmingly prefer playing mindfully. Yeah. The difference between the recordings is subtle but clear. We play it for people who have no idea of the study. So they're going to listen to recordings, the same piece of music that's played mindfully or mindlessly, and tell us which one they prefer. And about 90% of the people who listen to it prefer the mindfully played piece. All right, so the bottom line, and we have similar things with art, whatever, that when you do something mindful, you're enjoying it, you're actively noticing, you bring that consciousness to the thing that you're creating, so much so that other people appreciate that product more. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought you said the officer study, and I, oh, when yeah. you said that... When you Excuse yeah, me. You're, you're pretty thick with the excuses. <laughs> but when, as you said that, I was like, the, I was like, did she do the Stanford thing with the where they they had uh, jail? They, no, they had no, people that, acting as jail. That was, Phil, that was Phil Zimbardo. But that's another example of. <laughs> well, that, yeah, <laughs> not a, a different example, but an example of how the context can overdetermine our behavior. Right. The difference is that what I am suggesting is that we determine the context. Yeah. So if you know, let's say that when you're um, in hospitals, you're supposed to be quiet and obey the rules and so on, but now you're in the hospital with someone you deeply love or you know, a spouse, a girlfriend, boyfriend, a parent, and that person wants you to stay, for instance, longer than the hospital hours allow you to stay, well, now if the context you impose on yourself is a caring son, daughter, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, yeah. rather than a visitor in a hospital, you're going to stay rather than follow the rule. Yeah. Yeah. I would hope. Yeah. Unless, unless the request they're making is uh, casual and um, 
unimportant. Yeah. So we're we're um, getting close to being out of time. Is it okay if we go till till one, or is that is that craziness? No, that's fine. Okay, cool. Um, so one of the things so I just got back from a big like five month trip through Europe and a bit of Africa, and so I was really observing a lot as I was on that trip. And one of the things that I noticed was if you take you know, the, the Rodin statue, the thinker, the guy that's all curled up and he's looking yeah. like he's trying really hard to think about something, you know, and you look at that and then you look at Roman architecture and you look at just all of this, this lineation that we have. And it's, it's, we need to know, we need to have strict hard lines. And then you see the culture develop around that. You know, I, I wonder if there's any, do you see anything that's inherent in our, you know, our kind of our software and, and like maybe how we could work with that is from like a children perspective? You said twelve things that don't really go together. In I talk one. way too yeah, much. I drink way too so much I'm trying tea. to decode it to see which part. No, is all very smart. You get another A. Which part of that to respond to? And also, you threw me for a loop because you said you went to Africa, mm. and then you start describing Roman culture. I went to Europe and first, so, and then down into Africa. So I got kind uh, of like a full, like, oh, whoa, this is different perspective yeah, on the architecture okay. and such. Yeah. Um, and when you're talking about software, you're talking about our brains, which is so, most people would say hardware. Well, because I think it's soft. <laughs> I, I, no, I do too. I do too. But yeah. I'm just trying to make my way through all the different metaphors that you use to understand what you're asking. I think that what you're asking is, um, do we create a world that boxes us in, that boxes us in, that then starts to feel like second nature? And is there a way out? And that's something you might have said. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's what you said. But, how, how do we but, work with the hardwire around us potentially well, to affect I don't, our software? No, I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's hardwired. I think that if you do something over and over and over again, it feels like that's the only thing you can do. Right. Um, but I think it's very easy to do something different. Uh, we have all sorts of views of ourselves, things we think we can do, we can't do. And when you think there's something you can't do, you don't even try to do it. And if you use that piece of mindlessness and said, well, how do I know I can't do it? I mean, when in the recent past did I even try it? You know, this comes from 10 years ago, let's say, or you were taught this as a child that you can't do it. Or even if it was just yesterday, yesterday was yesterday. Today you're a new person. I use this, um, um, I, I talk about Langer's reverse of Zeno's paradox. Mm -hmm. Let me explain this to you since you seem to like philosophy. So Zeno's paradox with respect to distance was if you always go half the distance, you're never going to get to where you want to go. Right. So let's m imagine that you've gotten, you're an inch away from your goal and you go half the distance, you're a half an inch. You're a quarter of an inch or an eighth of an inch, and so you never quite get there. Well, this seemed to me um, cynical, all right? And um, so I tried to reverse, and I said, there's always a distance you can go from where you are to where you want to be. So let's say you have a problem with um, you eat a box of cookies a day and you want to eat, eat less. So you try to eat a half a box less. You can't eat a half a box less. So you try to eat a quarter of a box less. You can't eat it. Everybody can eat a crumb less. And so then you build up. Do you understand? There's always a distance you can go from where you are to where you want to be. 
so that you can be successful. And those small steps are really um, what life is is really about because once you achieve the goal, it's already in the past. Yeah. And I'm sure you've heard people say becoming is better than being. Um, um, I've often said that mastering is much more important than having mastered. Right. And once, you know, if you imagine when you were a little kid and you're in the elevator and you can't reach the buttons to press and then finally you stand on your toes and you stretch and you're able to hit the buttons and you're very excited and then you're able to hit all the buttons with ease and then it becomes uninteresting. Yeah. So... The interesting part is the learning, the not knowing or not being able to do to learning to be able to, not the final product. And so to set off on that journey, small steps are very important and easily within reach, as long as we don't mindlessly tell ourselves we can't. Something else that I think you've, you've written or said is that the world, something like this, the world is to be invented instead of discovered. I think. Yeah. Uh, well, I wasn't original. I didn't say that originally. I was quoting Sylvan Tompkins, and I don't know if he was the first to say it. Right. But yeah, in some sense, there are two types of people out there. There are those who think the world is to be discovered. That means it exists independent of people. It just sort of is. And there are those who believe that um, it's to be created. And I think that the more mindful stance tends to be. Um, to create the world that we want. Uh, and, and I think that another way, a way that I've approached this that um, I think may be useful to people is to recognize that virtually everything that is was person created. Now, when you recognize that there were people who created it, it should occur to you that it could have been created differently. Right. Let me give you an example. So I play tennis, and I'm a, a good intermediate player. Um, I have a strong serve. My serve would be much, much better if there were three serves rather than two serves. What I do is I throw the ball up, I hit it hard, it doesn't go in. Then I have a worse backup second serve because I'm playing doubles and I don't want to upset anybody. Right? Now, if there were three serves, imagine how good I'd be. I throw the ball up, I still miss it. Now, I learn from that. I throw the ball up, I slam it right, immediately after that feedback. Right. I'm going to be a better tennis player. Right. Now, nobody, I think, would think that two serves as opposed to three serves was handed down from the heavens. Right. You understand? Yeah. So to recognize that once you put people back in the equation, see that it was created by people who had biases, who lived at a particular time, um, who may not even feel that way right now, then everything becomes more mutable, subject to change. You know, so let's say an example. I think I wrote the. You should have. You should be familiar with what I'm saying because now it occurs to me that I, I think I had this in the On Becoming an Artist book. But so imagine you walk by somebody's house, and there's a sign that says "Keep off the grass." People will dutifully keep off the grass. Right. Now imagine that the sign said, "Ellen says keep off the grass." You'd probably say to yourself, who is Ellen? Maybe I can negotiate with her. <laughs> Maybe she doesn't live here anymore. So you see what I'm saying? Right. All, of a all of a sudden, um, you're asking questions and willing to, to make things better for yourself, to change the rules somewhat. Yeah. 
you know, you're sitting on a chair, the chair is uncomfortable. If you realize it was just somebody's idea of how to make a comfortable chair, you might change the chair yeah. so it's more comfortable. Yeah. The, we, there was one thing that I absolutely wanted to mention uh, before going was the, the over-medicalization of our state of being throughout the day. And again, it comes back to that insecurity of I need to have definition for every aspect of who I am or I'm out of control. You know? Yeah, and a lot of things become syndromes and conditions. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that we need to pay attention to the times we're not having the pain or whatever the symptom might be, right. to put things back in perspective. And also to recognize, sadly, but um, with you know, much certainty, the medical world cannot know much that we need them to know. Right. We're all very different. Things are influenced in multiple ways and so on. And so medical science, like all science, can only give us probabilities. That means that if they did the study again, exactly the same way, which of course they can't do because things change, they are likely to get the same findings. We take these probabilities and deal with them as absolute facts. That's what the media does. So to, to end this with a, a fun story, I'm at this horse event and this man asked me to watch his horse because he was going to get his horse a hot dog. Well, horses don't eat meat. Horses are herbivorous. So, but I say, sure, I'll watch your horse. He goes, gets the hot dog, and you know what? The horse ate it. And it was then that I realized all of our facts are true sometimes, not true at other times. Yeah. And if we recognize that uncertainty is the rule, not the routine, we stay tuned in. And if we stay tuned in, life becomes exciting. The neurons are firing, we feel engaged, we're looking forward to getting up in the morning, things become meaningful. And this mindful engagement turns out to be the best thing we can do for our health. I love it. That's, um, thank you. That's, you know, I'm in the process of kind of witnessing all of those aspects of like my nutrition and my movement and all these things that we think we're supposed to do because, you know, we read we're supposed to do it. And it's makes sense to step back. You know, yeah, so you can do it, but you don't need to be crazy when doing it. Right. You know, that if, if you're on a low-carbohydrate diet and you find out something you just ate had more carbs in it than you thought, the world's not going to end. Right, right. Unless you think it is, in which case, you know, things it, it might feels, really feel right. that way. Exactly. Right. So how do people... I, I wanted oh, no. to leave this interview on a positive note. Right. And now you have it, you know. So, so Horses, say something hot dogs. positive. I love America. Uh, okay. so, <laughs> So thank you so much. Uh, well, how do people, I think your books are amazing. I think um, I just I so greatly appreciate all that you are working to bring to the Western world. It's, it's, it's wonderful. I appreciate it. Um, how do people find well, more about you? Yeah, um, they can go on either of two websites, either ellenlanger.com. Probably... Um, more information on the Langer Mindfulness Institute. So langermindfulnessinstitute.com. But either one will uh, provide a lot of information. Fabulous. All right. Well, good luck to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Langer. <laughs> I greatly appreciate your time. <laughs> All right.
man. <laughs> Take care. Align Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show, and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body as well. Be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist, a massage therapist, all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening and remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.